You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 160th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, we'll continue our topic on parenting as I interview Irina Smith about her work with parents and college-bound school students. I know the decision for our kids to go into college is a major investment and accomplishment, so I'm looking forward to the advice Irina has to share. Irina is the author of the recently released memoir, The Golden Ticket, A Life in College Admission Essays. Before she was an author, she was a Russian Jewish immigrant, an English major, a PhD in comparative literature, a humanities and composition lecturer, a mother of three extraordinary children, a Sanford admissions officer, and a private college admissions counselor. Sounds like you've lived many lifetimes, Irina. Yes. She is an iveterate advocate of reading as many books at one time as possible, imperfect but earnest parenting, and the Oxford comma. Thank you so much for joining me today. As a grandmother of eight, I'm really looking forward to diving into this topic. Kim, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Terrific. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work with high school students applying to college? Yes. So for the past almost 17 years, I have worked with high school seniors and sometimes students in lower grades who are tasked with distilling their complicated, multifaceted lives into approximately five pages of a college application, which include questions about their family, where they grew up, who their parents are, what courses they're taking, what extracurricular activities they're engaged in, and then a collection of longish and sometimes very short essays about who they are. And the essays are really the crux of the application process because they are so subjective and so personal. Nice. You wrote a book called The Golden Ticket, which actually addresses a profound split between your professional life and your family life. Can you help our audience understand that dichotomy? Yes. So I call it at various times, dichotomy, split, chasm, abyss. There's all kinds of synonyms. Really to sharpen the point on this, because I used to be an admissions officer in Stanford's Office of Undergraduate Admissions, that label sort of sticks with you even or with me or anybody else who has worked at Stanford, even after they are no longer working at Stanford. And so I found myself being sought out by families with students who had very high aspirations. And if those aspirations didn't involve Stanford, they involved Harvard, Yale, Princeton, other Ivies, MIT. Caltech. And I like to joke sometimes as a consolation prize, Berkeley or UCLA or University of Michigan, which are by no means safety schools, I think, for anyone. 
I don't mean to imply that I was only working with Ivy League or Stanford-bound students, but that was for many families and students the expectation, which meant that the students I was seeing in my professional life were extremely accomplished, extremely academically successful, had resumes that might make a grown person weep with envy. And then in contrast, I was raising three children who were grappling with developmental delays. My oldest son was diagnosed with high-functioning autism when he was two and a half, ADHD, as it later came out in the case of our middle son and actually our youngest daughter, depression and anxiety, and also I think just the daily chaos of living in a house where not everybody was thriving. And then when that house was located in one of the most highly educated and highly accomplished cities in the world, it sort of was yet another additional layer of, on a cake of a lot of family difficulty. Mm, that sounds really challenging as the captain of the ship, if you will. It exactly. sounds like you had a lot to manage. Yeah. There's a passage in the book where I talk about coming home from work in my professional attire, which usually involved high heeled pumps because I'm five foot nothing on a good day. And so I felt that it was very important back when I saw students in person to pretend to be at least three inches taller. There was a physical shrinking down to my actual size. And then I would enter a world in which everything was typically in chaos from a world where everything was orderly and students and I made plans and I helped them see the shining truths of their life and articulate those truths as clearly and compellingly as possible. And then the chaos at home was not really something I could articulate to myself or to anyone for a long time. Wow. What is the significance of your title, The Golden Ticket? That is a great question. And it is my shout out once again to my husband who suggested it several years ago when I was on a long and extended goose chase for a title. I should note here that I'm terrible at titles. Many years ago, I decided that a great title for a book would be Tastes Like Chicken. I had no idea what that book would be about or what the plot was or anything, but I just thought I would buy a book with that name but no such book ever materialized. So I went through probably a couple dozen possible titles, none of which did the trick. And my husband finally suggested The Golden Ticket, which at first struck me as a children's book title. And then the more I thought about it, and I actually reread Charlie and the Chocolate Factory just to refamiliarize myself with the references, the more I realized what a perfect title it was, because The Golden Ticket is not everything it's cracked out to be for four of the five children who enter the chocolate factory. In fact, they would have been maybe better off not finding it. And it's also, like many other things in literature, such a loaded concept of all that glitters is not gold the one ring in The Lord of the Rings and the Midas touch and the Golden Fleece and Jason and the Argonauts, all of those are prized objects that end up bringing a lot of misfortune to their possessors or to those who seek them. 
in my case, it felt very much like the parents I was working with and the students I was working with were seeking what they thought was the golden ticket. And it took me a minute to realize that my husband and I were also doing that in our own way by trying to sort of fix our children in a way that we thought would be useful and would help them have an easier life, but that was not actually all that helpful to them. Yeah, I understand. We parents think we have the responsibility to fix our children when many times what we learn is they're here to teach us that they're so not broken. Exactly. Um, That's awesome. I'm curious, with all of this work, personally and professionally, do you have a significant piece of advice that you might give to parents? What I learned both from my professional work and in particular, the work we've done as a family to help emerge from what was many years of chaos and unhappiness and just a lot of personal turmoil is how important it is for parents to meet their children where they're at. A lot of times we interact with our children in a way that either explicitly articulates or presupposes that they should be in some particular place. And almost every parent, if not every parent, comes at this with the best of intentions. I don't think anybody comes into parenting twirling their villain mustache and saying, (laughs) I'm really going to screw up my children today. But from that good place comes a desire to use words or phrases like, you're not living up to your potential. And I think all that does is make kids feel inadequate rather than recognizing where they are and trying to work with that or just trying to meet them where they are without judging where they are or without hoping that they should be somewhere else instead. And I think this is true of every single kind of parenting, including when your child is learning to walk. Most parents don't run out and get a walking tutor and start freaking out that their kid isn't walking as fast as some other kid in the mom and baby group. They just try to keep them safe, keep your toddler away from stairs, but nobody freaks out that their child is not walking on a certain schedule, or if they do, they know that at some point their child will start walking. And I think the same extends to not everybody needs to go to Harvard and not everybody has the capacity to go to Harvard or Stanford. And even the people who do go to Harvard and Stanford may not be getting the education that's best for them or may not be able to tolerate the pressure at those schools. I hear a little bit, be careful what you ask for, you just might get it. Exactly. And I also hear something that I find is very aligned with the work that I do with parents, and I call it the unconditional trust challenge. And the unconditional trust challenge is just trusting that everybody is doing the best they know to do at any point in time to get what they want. That includes parents and it includes children. And Mm -hmm. if you trust that and you love someone, isn't that what you want is for them to get what they want? Learning to just trust the process and know that it's really not our job to fix our children, but to recognize that our children are not broken and that they're on a journey just like we had our journeys. And we're here to be a safe person to accompany them or to guide them on that journey, but certainly not to create the journey. Exactly. I love love that. The unconditional trust challenge. That is a really beautiful way. It sounded like what you were saying. It's just, I have a phrase for it. I'm working on my next book called Mental Freedom, and that's a part of it. 
What changes have you observed in the college admission landscape since you began working in undergraduate admissions? I'm sure things have changed before COVID, during COVID, after COVID. And what advice would you have for parents who are trying to navigate that process? That would probably fill another book to answer fully because I actually started my practice in 2008 and I was in the Stanford admissions office in the very early aughts. What has happened in less than a quarter of a century has been a pretty titanic shift, which I think can be boiled down to it is incredibly more difficult to get into an increasingly large number of schools mostly because of the very predictable consequences of the U.S. News and World Report, which started ranking colleges in 1983 in order to, I might add, boost their sagging sales. And we all know, I think, as human beings that we like our rankings. We like to know what's at the top. We want what's at the top. Nobody wants college 2,548 out of 3,000, even if it might be a really excellent college for that particular student. Colleges have gotten very good at reading how the U.S. News and World Report ranks and how to manipulate those rankings in order to climb up them. As a result, schools that had, I want to say, maybe a 40% admit rate, like University of Chicago in the early aughts now has a 6% admit rate. It's not because University of Chicago is suddenly an exponentially better school than it was in the early 2000s. It's because the rankings are such that you can create artificial scarcity or perception of artificial scarcity that nobody is getting into college when the truth is nobody is getting into probably about 25 to 30 colleges including with extraordinary credentials. And instead of looking beyond the rankings, parents and students are instead trying to mold themselves into the image of, well, how can I be that extraordinary person who's part of the 6% who's admitted to the University of Chicago? That kind of disconnect, Frank Bruni in his book, Where You Go Is Not Who You'll Be, calls it Yale or Jail Thinking is really because people aren't willing to consider other alternatives. And so my best advice to parents is, yes, it's nuts out there, but you don't have to subscribe to the nuttiness. You really can get off the crazy train. You can absolutely look at other much more sane options like community college and then transferring to a four-year for kids who aren't sure they're ready to start a four-year college. There are a lot of other options, but We've created a world where it is Yale or jail. It's either the gold ticket or nothing or despair and failure. This makes me want to share my story, which I'm not particularly proud of, but it is a true story. When I was applying to colleges, I probably could have gotten into almost any college. I had great SAT scores. I had well-rounded extracurriculars. I probably could have gone almost anywhere. My grades were great. But I was dating a boy in high school, my junior and senior year, and he wasn't super smart. He was a football player and he was going to go to college. And we wanted to go to college together because we were going to get married one day. I waited to see where he got accepted. He got accepted at Indiana University of Pennsylvania at a branch campus. 
So I applied to Indiana University of Pennsylvania main campus. And the really crazy thing is we broke up the summer before we went to college. Of course. So that's, that's where I went to school. And I don't for one minute regret it. I had a great college education. I learned a lot and it certainly didn't disadvantage me in any way. That's just my story for those parents out there who maybe can't afford to send their kids to Harvard or Yale, or maybe whose kids aren't going to qualify for those different schools. There are other ways to get your education in a way that can help support you in what it is that you want to do. I love that. And without also incurring hundreds and thousands of dollars in student debt. I know we're not here to talk about the financial burden of college, but that's the other really big change is college has gotten monstrously more expensive since the time that I have been doing the work that I do out of all proportion with inflation and growth in income and other economic indicators. The fact that so many families are willing to pay full freight for the prestige of going to a particular college also really narrows the options before their children. Because if you're paying $80,000 for a private school, you better major in something practical. You're not going to be majoring in philosophy or art or English or music because those are not good returns on investment. Whereas if you're not paying $80,000 a year for college, you have a lot more room to explore. And when are you going to explore if not as a young person. Absolutely. I always told my kids, find something that you love to do because you're going to be doing it every day for the rest of your life. So don't push yourself into a field that you think is going to be drudgery. Exactly. So, okay. We're getting towards the end of our time together already. So I'm wondering if there's anything you might like to add that we haven't already talked about. The only thing that I might suggest to parents who are starting to look down the long and dark tunnel of the college admissions process is just really to amplify what I said earlier, meet your children where they are, because it is stressful enough to be a senior in high school in this day and age and to worry about so many other things, including school, including extracurriculars, including what your friends think of you and what they might be saying on Snapchat, Instagram, and other forms of social media that we didn't have to deal with. Don't add to that pressure by making college something that your student has to do, because there are students who may not be interested in college, who may not want college. And you can learn a lot about being curious about where they are rather than telling them where they should be. A hundred percent. Beautiful. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you to maybe talk a little bit more about what it is you do, how would they reach you? They could reach out through my author website, which is www.irenasmith.com. That's if they would like to talk about the book in particular, which I'm always happy to do. I am now actually for college counseling partnering with Sierra Admissions, which is at sierraadmissions.com. That's the place where I, in consultation with a really great team of five other writing specialists, college admissions professionals, and other smart and fun people work with high school students embarking on the college journey. What a great service. I love that. I'll keep that in the back of my mind. I have an almost 16-year-old. It won't be long. I know I keep telling my son, just blink and she'll be gone. It It happens so fast. Absolutely. Um, 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Arena. I know the work you're doing is so important, and I appreciate you taking the time to share it with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kim. This was great. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Shaker Fadger Al-Kahifa about choice theory parenting. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.